Hello, and welcome to I Am Dad podcast with your fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. 30 minutes of wisdom, information, resources, and nuggets to help you on your fatherhood journey. Or maybe you're just curious and want to hear some real talk about fatherhood, family, and the minds of men. Well, guess what? We got you too. Sit back, grab your pad and pen, and maybe even bring a little something to sip on. Enjoy 30 straight minutes of fatherhood, family, and fun with the fatherhood authority. Kenneth Braswell. Welcome to I Am Dad Podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell. Thank you for joining us on another Sunday morning as we bring you new guests, new perspectives, new energy, new all that stuff for the 2024 season. Uh, we are cruising through the third season of I Am Dad Podcast, and I'm happy about that. Um, the guests that we've had thus far has, have been phenomenal. And we're going to continue that ball rolling today with a really good friend of mine. I met him some years ago through another mutual friend, Dante Carter. He's doing some awesome things here in Atlanta. He moved here from Valdosta. Um, and he married the woman who stole his heart at a Valentine's Day party. We definitely going to talk about that. Um, he also has a new book out um, that was inspired by his daughter. Um, he is the co-founder, or he is the founder and lead communication strategist um, at the Carter Media Group. And he has had a lot of success in doing that work around um, public relations, but typically uh, or specifically um, in some high profile cases that involve both um, highlighting um, the uh, voice of the survivors of the R. Kelly case and then Armand Arbery that I know most of you know about and others. He's received some prestigious awards from the 26th Annual Communication Awards and done a lot of other things. And so I'm excited to talk to him. Um, and he ran for office uh, some time ago here um, in Georgia. And I want to talk a little bit about that as well. How you doing, sir? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How you doing today? I cannot complain at all. At least I try not to complain. <laughs> Uh, listen, this is how we start off all of our shows, um, because it's always a, an um, important component of the storyline of the people that I invite to um, be on the show. And that is your daddy story. Tell us your daddy story. Oh, man. Uh, man, I, I don't even know where to begin with that one. You know, it's um, I grew up in a single parent working class household and, uh, you know, my uh, my father wasn't there. And, you know, it's I think we get so often caught up the single parent story that we don't give life to the stories of the men that came in as substitutes. And mm -hmm. uh, the older that I've become, the more I kind of look back and, and I had to be honest with my mother and tell her that she didn't do it by herself. You know, in between my stepfather coming in um, when he did in between, you know, my football coaches, my best friend's father, um, man, Derek, uh, you know, the Robinson family always hold a special place in my heart because, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Robinson made sure that uh, even though I was a mile away from the school that I didn't walk home. He was so worried about what 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 trouble I could have fell into just walking home from football practice that he took it upon himself to make sure that he drove me home. And in him driving me home, you know, he was talking to us about college. And I mean, that's part of the reason why I went to FAM. I graduated mm -hmm. from FAM, but I attended FAM because... Mr. Robinson went there. He talked about meeting his wife there. You know, it's like, you know, it's those little stories that you can share with 15, 16, 17 year old young men and you don't realize the lasting impact that they have on your life. And and, and that was one of the things that as I became a father, I started to look back at, at all the men that, that played such a, a pivotal role in my life that really served as supplements. And so, um, and, and prepared me for that opportunity for when I did get a chance to sit down and, and me and my father, did speak and, and have these tough conversations about where he was and, and what happened that I was mentally, spiritually, and physically in the place to even have that conversation. And so um, my daddy's story is, is, a, is a story of a community that, that saw a young man and, and wrapped their arms around him. And I, I think that story uh, too often is lost. You know, we, we, we surround ourselves with this story of, of all these single parent uh, uh, majority single women households and we don't talk about the men in our community that step up that, that play roles in protecting our children and uh, and to me that's um, that's what's so powerful even about what you're doing is um, you're highlighting 
men who are doing this day in and day out, and whether they realize the impact that they're having on somebody like myself, that impact is being had. And I think that's what's so special um, about fatherhood. Uh, thank you so much for that. You know, two of the reasons that uh, we start off the show with that, one is to let men out there know um, that we are aware of them, um, mm-hmm. that we don't forget them. But it's also at the same time important to understand that men that you're describing like Derek understood fully that while he could never replace your father in your life, he could compensate for him. The problem sometimes is when men try to replace and you can't replace the hole in someone's heart that was left there by someone um, that they continue to agonize over and want to discover. And so those men that understand, you know, the compensating piece of it are loved as much, if not more, dearly as as the biological father. So it's always important to kind of um, do that. The second um, reason, Dante, is that your story is going to resonate with somebody. Yeah. Where that linear story, which is, oh, my dad was never in my life. I can't stand that, blah, 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 blah. And then it creates and, and, and perpetuates the narrative that men don't show up in the lives of their children. And so to tell your story says that there is a full story, right? Because we so often get locked down in the piece of the story that really hangs on our emotions as opposed to opening ourselves up and being able to understand that there's a fuller story. And some of your answers that you're looking for may be in that story. And if you don't open yourself up for the fuller story, you may never have an answer to that thing that you ache the most about. And so thank you so much for sharing um, that story um, with us this morning. Um, You came here to Atlanta like I did. I came here 10 years ago. Um, You didn't come as far though. You was Southern, South, South, South Georgia going even deeper you know, <laughs> Georgia, right? What made you do that? What made you come from um, that location, which I would assume is a little slower, not as, you know, not as, you know, flamboyant as, as, <laughs> as Atlanta is coming to Atlanta. What made you make that move? Well, you know, I, um, so I was in, I was in the news industry. I grew up down in Orlando, Florida, um, worked in television news when I was in college. So it was bananas. I was, I was in school, what, five years? Three of those five, I was working overnight, like mm. um, midnight to eight, going to school during the day. Um, by the time I graduated, I was working as an executive producer at the local uh, TV station in Tallahassee. Um, but then my boss came to me with a great opportunity to report. I just had to do it in Valdosta. <laughs> and so um, I went there with the Valdosta and, and a buddy of mine called me up um, uh, one February back in, uh, I believe it was 20, was it 20? It was 2010. And uh, he said, man, I've uh, been getting to know this young lady up in uh, Atlanta. Um, they're having a Valentine's Day party. Um, I need the crew to roll with me. And um, <laughs> what's so bananas about that, this story is uh, him and her didn't hit it off. But I saw my wife um, at the dance that night. And um, I just, you know, I asked her multiple times to dance, man. And she just kept giving me the the runaround. And I said, look, you're going to dance with me or what? Like, we're having a great conversation. What's going on here? She was like, you just don't understand. I have two left feet. And I said, well, I got two right feet. Let's see if we can find a rhythm. And mm. I started laughing. And uh, we hit it off that night. And uh, it was crazy because I was living in Valdosta. She was living in Dallas. But she had been in Atlanta interviewing for a job. And uh, it was bananas because I got a call in Tulsa. <laughs> And they wanted to offer me a job working at a TV station there. Right when I got the call, she was like, man, I got the job in Atlanta. I'll be working up at Northside Hospital. I'm like, dog. So, you know, mm-hmm. we get to this place and we do this swap. Um, but what was amazing about it is um, we dated long distance for two years. And it was a great opportunity for me to get to know her um, for a wholeness and, and really seeing her. And so, um, you know, I spent a lot of money traveling between Tulsa in Atlanta, and anybody that knows Tulsa knows they don't have any. Eh, they got an airport. They got a. They say it's an international airport, but um, y'all know how it is. <laughs> and so um, it, uh, we spent a lot of money commuting back and forth. But I think it, 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 when I saw 
who she was and her character in this relationship, um, especially going long distance. I was just like, man, um, when I get that opportunity, we just, we got to make this role because if, if she can ride with me through this and everything that I'm going through, I'll take this, I'll take this every single day. And so, um, we did. So, um, she's still, um, up here in Atlanta practicing a uh, doctor, one of the partners at her, uh, her practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I got here, I worked at, uh, CBS 46 and 11 alive for a little while. Went over to the Fulton County DA's office as their, uh, youngest director of public affairs. And, um, you know, it was while I was in the office that I, you know, I saw something that really moved my spirit and kind of activated me in a way that I I didn't think would happen. And so there were um, four young men between the ages of um, 14 and 16, and uh, they were being charged with with murdering murdering a a white midtown Atlanta man. You know how it goes when it it hits those racial lines and, and they blow it up and um, I just, I'll never forget when that trial, um, when the trial actually started and, um, the victim's mother took the stand and she said, um, she said, my son came to me in my dreams and said that y'all got the wrong, the wrong person, the wrong people. And, um, you know, I just remember sitting in there and, you know, we're behind closed doors, the DA, the prosecutor, and, you know, I'm, I'm so used to seeing these things happen in movies this is the first time I'm sitting in the room where it's happened. And um, I'm listening to the DA ask the prosecutor all these questions. And he's like, well, did you, f-? you know, because at this point the judge had, you know, ruled a mistrial. And, and so um, he's asking, well, did you follow up on the, on the police's investigation? And um, she said, I looked at everything and turned over. And he said, did you follow up on it? Like, did mm. you, he said, all these boys had cell phones, right? She said, yeah. It was like, where did their cell phones ping at? Which towers were those signals bouncing off of? Mm-hmm. And um, she couldn't tell them. She didn't know because she didn't look. And um, then they finally did it. And one of the uh, one of the experts made a comment along the lines of these boys would have had to have been flashed to run murder this guy mm-hmm. and take off. And um, I remember after that, the DA was asking me, man, you know, you haven't been the same. And um it just, it did something to me when I saw, I mean, those, those boys could easily have been me coming up and mm. to see them that close, because even in Georgia, you know, you can go away from murder, get a life sentence and be eligible for parole after serving 30 years. You take a kid at 14 to 16, give them 30 years, right? You talking about they're 44, 46. By that time, the majority of their life has spent behind bars, incarcerated. Mm-hmm. What do you expect them to become once you release them? You know what I'm saying? Like nobody yeah, yeah, ever gets yeah. this whole thing through. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that's what, what really got me wanting to, wanting to uh, be more of an advocate, especially um, as it pertains to young black boys, because um, nobody's trying to tell, you know, to your point that you made earlier, nobody's trying to tell that other side of the story. You know, that was one of the things that I that I told my father when when me and him sat down and we had a real discussion. I couldn't have had this discussion with him uh, before my daughter was here. Mm-hmm. When my daughter came, everything that he felt I could relate to feeling. As crazy as that sounds, that feeling mm-hmm. was equal to what I felt as a kid feeling abandonment. And um, at that part, at that point, my mother and I had to have a real conversation. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I think that um, so often we think that the parent that stayed was, um, was the best parent because they were there. And we don't think about the entirety of, of the trauma that, that the both were facing and really getting into that. And, um, and it, it, was, it was tough. You know, um, my father made, uh, made a huge mistake. He cheated on my mother. And... Um, and it, I mean, when she, the way she got back at him wasn't physically, it was verbally. It mm. was, it was, hey, Dante's, that's why Dante's not yours. And mm. hearing that over and over just drove him to a place that, you know, when we sat down and talked, I was like, man, if my wife told me my daughter wasn't mine, it would have broke me. 
You know what I'm saying? I don't know if I came back from that. And, you know, but I think God knew what he was doing when he, he allowed me to kind of reach a certain place so that we could have this conversation as men. Mm-hmm. And where I could, as difficult as it is and as weird as it sounds, be able to meet him with compassion. And I don't like, I think my daughter was one part, but kind of going back, you know, um, and I'll tie this in in just a second, but, um, you know, when attorney Gerald Griggs called me about the um, surviving R. Kelly case and let me know that he was working with some of the parents, um, it was a lot that he kind of left me in terms of information. And at this point, um, R. Kelly hadn't been charged or anything. And so in my mind, I'm like, I don't, I don't know where to even start with this pricing or anything because it's it's so much. We actually have to really build a case, draw awareness about the allegations and being able to move. And I remember just expressing that frustration with my wife and she was just quiet. And um, hey, are you all right? And she said, you know, at some point, you know, we need our husbands, our, our fathers, our brothers to acknowledge that there's a problem. And she said that the fact that I hear you saying these things and you have a young black daughter that could have been your daughter, like you were, you're acting and looking at this from such a removed place that it infuriates me and um, talking to her and listening really helped me to see how disconnected I was in many of these issues. And, you know, when, when I accepted the, the award um, on it, you know, and I was, I'll be honest, I was blown away because this organization has given awards to Disney, Universal Studios. It's always been big groups. I'm a, I'm not a big company. I had no aspirations to be a big company. You know, I just wanted to be, I just wanted to make an impact. And so when I accepted the award, that was one of the things that I said. I, I talked about the impact that my wife had on me with this case. What I, what I didn't expect to happen was I, I didn't expect for and me fighting to see my wife, to see my daughter, I didn't know it was going to push me to see myself at a deeper level, to see my own humanity. And I didn't realize that in order to truly see them, I had to see me. Mm. And so when a Mod Arbery case comes up, I'm looking at myself in a mirror. And um, I remember when, uh, um, and I ended up working with, uh, with Griggs on that case as well, when he sent me the video before we launched the PR campaign, my daughter was two at the time and I'm holding her in my arms. And I remember just falling to the floor crying. And it wasn't like I'm giving up crying. It was just like, I'm tired. Like we still, mm-hmm. this is 2020. I'm locked in a house. It's COVID. And it just, and I remembered uh, attorney Griggs. He was just like, look, man, he was like, I'm gonna let you cry, but we gotta get these dudes put away. He was, I need what you, he said, everything that you poured into the R. Kelly case, I'm going to need on this Ahmad case. I need you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was always ready for it. But it was difficult because, you know, at this point I was starting therapy. And so there were a lot of emotions that I wasn't even used to even acknowledging. I was so used to stuffing things that I almost had to let that out in order to get refocused and recentered. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, and that's, it's, it's been a, for me, it's been that constant build from there. It's like, man, like when, when we restore the humanity to black men, to black fathers, these things were taken from us and they were taken intentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, this system has been designed to keep us out of the house and we have to fight against the system. And it's crazy because like when, when I was working on that R. Kelly case, I'm like, man, these laws aren't even sufficient enough to protect our women. Well, guess what? These laws ain't set up to protect black men either. And it, you know, that realization was tough, you know? And so um, it really exposed me and forced me to kind of open up. So people think I just like, a lot of folks are like, oh, he's just running for mayor. Or he's just trying to, you know, get business. It was, it was never any of that. It was, there was a buildup an emotional, physical, psychological buildup that was like, no, something's got to change. Yeah. So let's, let's, yeah. So let's, let's unpack some of that. Cause you put a lot in that brother. Good Lord. (laughs) You put a lot in that. And so, 
um, just to kind of step back just a little bit so mm-hmm. that folks will know the journey, right? Because it's important that people kind of know the journey. And that's what I really wanted to do with this podcast. That's why, you know, people who I asked to come on will say things like, man, you're going to send me some questions. No, I'm not going to send you no questions. (laughs) It's not a presentation. This is a conversation. I'm not going to ask you anything that you should not be able to answer. And if you do have a problem with answering it, then that's not on me. That's on you. And so when, you know, we're having conversations, you know, um, it's crazy because, um, I saw a meme, you're talking about your um, story and particularly talking about your mom. I saw a meme on social media a few days back that said, um, be careful about how much you hate your father because one day you'll find out that it was your mother and her family who kept him from being with you. Mm. And I was like, whoa. It's deep. Because to a certain extent, that was my situation. Right. I learned that there were things that I didn't know about him that were never told to me. Um, and it placed a short wedge between my mother and I, you know, that I think about often. It doesn't bother me anymore. Now I know what I know. Right. And mm-hmm. so but you do have to go through a, po- a process of repairing a relationship with someone that you have poured your 1,000% into. And now you're struggling with pouring any more because that person to you feels like they weren't who they presented themselves Mm -hmm. to be. And that person happens to be your mother. That's a hard, hard thing. You're talking about something for a man, right? Mm -hmm. With a little boy within him right, that remembers this person a particular way. But now the man has to see this person another way, which contributes to this internal conflict between you as the man and the little boy inside you that don't want to deal with this, Mm -hmm. right, can't wrap his head around that. Talk about that process a little bit, because I, I know that men don't understand that process and maybe struggling with that process. What were some of the things that you did that allowed you to initiate the conversation? And then how did you separate what might have been your initial reaction emotions from what you really wanted to get to? You know, it's 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 interesting because like I would always my mother would always have these periods where she was like, man, I'm just I'm sorry about what I did to you but I never knew what she was talking about. Like, I, there was no context for me. And I'm just like, you know, my mind is a kid and I'm like, no, nah, you don't need to apologize. You stay. That dude that left needs to apologize. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, it's, it's tough because um, I did harbor a lot of hatred <clears throat> and animosity towards my father because I went through some things that I felt like had he been there, I would have been protected from. Um, you know, I, you know, my mom doesn't even like me talking about these things. And I, you know, in fact, I told her yesterday, I was like, look, when I talk about these things, I need you to not personalize them and take mm-hmm. offense to everything that I'm saying. Like, I'm saying it because there's another kid out there that went through what I went through. And if they don't see what this other side looks like, mm-hmm. and it, it, it makes them lose hope. And I've seen what happens to these kids when they lose hope. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, when I talk about when we were homeless, um, she's like, man, like, she's like, I feel like sometimes you hang it over my, and I'm like, I'm not hanging this over your head. But the reality is, is I went through this. This, this created a level of trauma for a nine-year-old that a nine-year-old shouldn't, shouldn't have had to deal with. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I'm wrestling with these things, um, being, being homeless, um, <clears throat> having abusive, uh, uh, boyfriends that my mother had, you know, me fighting them, you know what I'm saying? And like, mm-hmm. just sitting back and like, man, if my if my pops was there, would I have this scar above my eyebrow that I have here from fighting? You know, I'm 12 years old fighting a grown man, you know, mm-hmm. 
I fought, I fought my stepdad when he, when he put his hands on my mother. Like, you know what I'm saying? I'm 10 years old and I'm taking a beating that I knew he was going to give to her. And so I'm thinking all these things like, man, if my father was here, would, would all these things have occurred? If they would have occurred, how would he have responded? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm carrying all this stuff, right? And, um, you know, I remember as a man when I first reached out, because I was actually driving past the city that my father lived in. And um, I was working as a reporter at the time, and I looked him up. <clears throat> and I said, you know what? I was driving from Tulsa to um, to Orlando, and I had to come through Columbus. And that's where, that's where my dad lives. And I was like, I'm going to stop in. I'm going to stop out there in Columbus, Georgia, and we're going we're gonna to talk this out. And I remember I called his house, and um, you could just tell he was angry. He's like, I just ain't got nothing to say. You know what I'm saying? And I, again, I had no context to his his anger. I thought he was just trying to be a deadbeat, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, <clears throat> so back in 2020, I pulled up at his house again, and um, I was like, nah, dog, we need to talk. You know, and um, it was like, it's like, yeah, we need to talk. I'm just not ready to. And again, I had no context. I thought he was doing the 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 shape shifter thing, and like, I was so like, and I, you know, in my mind, it's like I want to eliminate any excuse that he might have. <clears throat> I knew I had siblings, so um, me and my two other siblings um, by him, we well, not not two, but one of them, we went and got you know DNA tested. Um, I didn't know what I didn't even know, know what DNA test meant. You know, my wife mm-hmm. is. She's a doctor. She was like, man, she's like, I ain't never seen that close of a DNA sample between siblings. Like, y'all are definitely blood related, like close wow. blood related. And so I was like, okay, well, that's not an issue. Denial of me is not an issue. So um, we need to talk. And um, I don't know, you know, God told me to just lay off and I laid off and um, ended up going down to, because, you know, at this point, my sister, she saw the DNA test. So she's bringing me around the family, want me to, um, you know, kind of, you know, connect with the family. And um, we went down to my great aunt's 85th birthday party and um, he ended up coming. And it was at the party that we actually started sitting down and a lot of this stuff started coming out. And I remember on my drive back from Columbus to Atlanta, I told my mama, said, we talked. And she just went on to the apology thing again. Just want you to know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But now, I actually knew what she was apologizing for before wow. I knew what she was apologizing for. Mm-hmm. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, and that was one of the things that I was talking to my wife about when I was kind of going through it. I was just like, man, I don't know what I would have done if you would have told me that Kylie wasn't mine. Like mm-hmm. to me, that's the level of, of, of distrust and mistrust that that creates. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you repair that. And so my. when he disappeared, I started to, and that's what I was saying with the empathy standpoint, I started to understand. And so like, um, but I don't, I don't know if I could have gotten to this place without being a father, mm. without really, without going through therapy and starting to get a better understanding of how I tick. Cause you know, I think this whole process for black men is different and nobody talks about it. Right. Cause we're not just dealing with, you know, they talk about fatherlessness across America and you're like, well, men across America aren't doing a good job. Yeah. But it's different. Mm-hmm. Um, being a black man because everything is so systemic yeah. nobody talks about the systemic portion of all this right and so mm-hmm. yeah my father had his issues right but I'm also dealing with that while being a black man while being in a community that's over police you know what I'm saying so there's so yeah. many different things yeah. that go through my mind so when you talk about that process I'm like man you got to think through all of this but in me thinking through all of this helped me to see you know, even in Sandy Springs, right? We're 50% minority up here. Right. Largest group of that minority are black kids. And we got a large number of black kids in our community that don't have fathers present. So now I'm looking at them different and looking for them differently. You know what I'm saying? Because wow. I know, I understand the pitfalls, but when you ask, when you talk about that journey, like that's what I, it, that journey gave me a much broader context from a legal standpoint and from mm-hmm. a community standpoint. Of what these things truly look like, and so I hope that answered the question. Yeah, um, I wanted to um, 
pull it through because I want to get to your now, right? But there's mm -hmm. these things that you talked about in the past that I just don't want to gloss over. I yeah. don't want us to kind of strip it a little bit because people got to understand this, both men and women, right? Because you talk about your wife. And so, and that's, that's where I want to pull it to the current. But you, you, you triggered me and there's something you said. We have a lot of similarities in your, 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 your trajectory and path. Um, is similar to some of the things that I experienced as well, uh, being a young man watching my um, stepfather um, abuse my mother and being on the other side of the door, um, listening to him beat her and feeling helpless that I couldn't do anything, you know, about that or watching him hit her in public or, and I know that she doesn't remember that I remember any of that stuff, but that stuff singes in your mind. It doesn't like disappear. Um, wow. it, it stays in there. And so um, my mom has sent me, and this was not a, this was a good guy who did bad things. This wasn't a bad guy who mm -hmm. did evil things. This is a good guy who did bad things. And I learned later on in life, after I understood about his upbringing, I got it, to your point. Like, there's some point later in life that you learn something and someone gives you a piece of information and you get it. It doesn't make it right, but yeah. you get it, right? And so my mother sent me up to go to school where he was. I don't know what was going on in my life um, in Brooklyn that she sent me up to Syracuse, New York. But one day we got into an argument and got into a fight in the kitchen. Um, and he, he put me in a headlock and he was choking me. And um, there was a window behind us and my mind was, I wanted to back and I wanted to throw him out the window. I mean, even though he was in the house, if it had happened, um, he wouldn't have been hurt. And then secondly, because he had me in a headlock, if he went out the window, I would have went out the window. I wasn't even thinking like that, but God had a different something in mind and I slipped or we slipped. And we fell down at the base of the window. And we fell down at the base of the window. I yelled at him, let me go. You're not going to beat me like you beat my mother. That's what I said to him. Mm -hmm. And what I realized at that moment, Dante, was that wasn't the teenage boy talking to him. That was the little boy talking mm -hmm. to him. The little boy had had enough. Mm -hmm. And that's what gets us to that place. A physical boy isn't quite there yet, but that little boy at some point has enough. That's yeah. why we always have to be mindful that there's a little boy inside of us that speaks to us, the man yeah. part of us, and that we must listen to that little boy and find ways not only to reconcile things with other people, but as adults, we have to reconcile things with that little boy um, yeah. inside of us. And so when you talk about your wife pulling it through, like what conscious things that you think um, after you met your life mate and you had your child that you said, you know what, I'm bringing a different dude to this table, to this table. This is going to be a different man. It's going to be a whole different thing. Like what, how did you come to that conclusion? Man, you know, um, I was telling folks, like, um, before I ever wrote, you know, wrote this book along with my daughter, that my wife wrote a book. And it was it was one of the, and she wrote it, went in there, and she paid somebody to print it up. It was a picture book of just, you know, all the memories we made and, and just really did a, a amazing job of capturing um, our dating relationship at the time. And... Um, like what I saw from my wife as I was kind of looking at those pictures is somebody that truly had my back. Mm. It wasn't like she saw me beyond the shortcomings. And I think that, and, and, and this is what breaks my heart even in today's day and age, right? Is, you know, there's this expectation that, man, if men aren't here, here or here, are they no good? They broke, they this, they that. Nobody ever talks about the fact that the average man only makes $50,000 a year. That's man, right? So now let's, let's, let's take a black man out of that group, right? Now we're talking about under $42,000 a year, the average black man. Right. Average black woman is making less than $36,000 a year, right? So this whole, this whole top 10 man and all this stuff that people are talking about, we're talking about, we're comparing 
millions of black men to five of them. And for us, that's not even fair. And so I felt that without even seeing the statistics, I felt that. And so like, you know, my wife, she's seven years older than me. She was further in her career than I was at the time. You know what I'm saying? And there was there was one time where, you know, you're talking about a thousand dollar plane ticket every other month. Man, this stuff, it it, it catches up on you and it, and it and it hits you. And I remember one time I just I hit her up and I was like, man, I don't, I don't think I can afford to come out, you know. Um, and she was like, man, you tripping. And I was like, what you mean? She was like, you tripping. And I was like, what do you mean? She was like, look, bro. If you need if you need me to buy a plane ticket, just say so. Mm. And I was like, man, I was like, but if, if I buy a plane ticket, I can't afford dinner, I can't afford these things. She said, look, if we're gonna get married, uh, we're gonna be in this business. Mm-hmm. Man, when I heard her say that, I was like, oh man, she understands what it is, right? So now it's like all the shields are down. It's like she understands that she understands where we gotta meet it. She understands what we gotta do. She there's an understanding there. So you know what? All right, cool, let's ride. But it was it was that pivotal moment where I'm like, okay, man, she sees me, she understands me, mm-hmm. she's willing to work with me, and it just hit different. And and I'll be honest, like I hadn't, and it's it's unfair to even make this statement, so I want to preface it with that. But at the time, I hadn't seen that out of too many black women, mm-hmm. and I, I don't even like to say that because I don't want to disparage any of them because I know there are good black women out there. But at the time, I hadn't seen it. You know, I thought I was going to have to go to the other side of the fence to, to find somebody because that's where all my boys that were climbing the ladder, making money, they were going over there. Mm-hmm. But when I found this, I was like, man, let's ride. Let's do this. Like, this is powerful. Now now I'm like, man, I got Coretta right now. That's that's Coretta. She's going to hold me down. But, yeah, that's that's what it was. It was it was that moment in my most – because, I mean, think about it, man. As men, we're taught to be providers. We're taught to be all these things. And so – when we're coming up short in these areas financially, those are areas we are most often attacked in. Right. Like, man, you didn't live up. And so at the at, at what I what I looked upon as my weakest moment because of where I was financially and not being able to live up, and I saw her compassion and her love, I was like, man, like, no, I'm not playing. Because I had I had some guys that I knew, I had mentors. They were like, man, you were too young to be getting married. And I'm like, look, man. <laughs> Mm-hmm. All y'all get divorced. Y'all can't find. Y'all been like hopping from one girl to the next girl. And I found somebody that's ready to roll. Mm-hmm. I'm a roll too. Like, listen. They're like, yeah, but you got so much life. I'm like, nah, listen, listen. I, I, I get it. I get it. But, um, yeah, I'm a considered the source dude. I'm like you. I'm a considered the source dude. I'm, you know, I wasn't like that younger. You know, any of my boys could tell me anything. I probably would listen to it a little more. I wouldn't act because I was never a follower. And so, yeah. but it's one of the things, Dante, that drives me crazy about what social media has done to um, experience, you know, an opportunity, which you can have somebody um, garner, and you know this from the social media standpoint, they can garner two million people following them as an influencer, um, as someone who could help you repair credit, Mm -hmm. um, but they living in an apartment, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, or write, you know, to your point about books, you know, you know, become a comedian and write books about relationships, but got, you know, two, three divorces. And not that you can't glean from someone, you know, about, you certainly can glean something from, about relationships from someone who has three divorces, but let's be clear, you yeah. you gotta keep that in context, right? You gotta keep those kinds yeah. of things in context. And so now you got this beautiful baby girl and um, you are now father and that particular moment changes things in you. Um, I remember, and I don't know if you remember this, you, 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 have, you are of the hip hop age as I am, I'm much, <laughs> deeper back. I'm in the origins of the hip hop age. You're a little further up. But I remember um, Jay-Z was interviewed um, after he got married to Beyonce. And when Blue Ivy was born, he made the statement, wow, you know, after having this little girl, 
I'll never call another woman the B word. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was so powerful. And I was like, man, that's kind of cool that you've come to that epiphany. But then I thought to myself, why didn't you have that epiphany when you married your wife? Why did it take mm. your daughter to get to that epiphany? But you didn't have that epiphany when you married your wife. It is something about men having little girls that change our perspective about women. Did you experience any of that? I, I did. Um, I don't know why, man. I always felt like I always felt like my first child was going to be a girl. Always. I, I don't know if that was God just telling me, get your mind right, get your heart right. But I, I always kind of felt like the first one was going to be a girl. I just, I, I don't know. I always just felt it. And so and I, I'm talking about, I was, I was thinking this before, like before me and my wife met, right? And so now I'm even going about relationships differently. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, if I'm, if you know, if I have this this little girl, who who is going to be the person that she looks up to? Who is she going to see? Who is she going to be the one that she models herself after? And um, you know, I would look at this as okay. If I and if I have a son, what am I doing? to be somebody that he can look up to. Mm. Um, but yeah, so when I had her, it did shock me. I think what, what happened to me was it was more along the lines of, man, uh, I'm glad I listened to that voice inside that told me to. Because, you know, I had, um, before my wife came into the picture, man, I, I was dating some young ladies and I don't, you know, sometimes as, as young men, we can get so caught up in what she looks like, mm-hmm. what the dimensions are, all these things, right? Um, and we chase these things. And what do we chase with these things? We we take on, well, <laughs> we take on the headaches. We take, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. All this crazy, all this, we, we take all this drama on. And I remember thinking, man, as much as I'm attracted to this this woman, I cannot have a daughter that is looking up to her as a mother mm. because it's not going to set the the example that needs to be set. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, seeing the things that, that, you know, my mother went through growing up, all, just all these things, it just made me kind of look at that lens differently. And so when I, when my daughter came into the picture, I had the example for her to see at this point, it was just more of a, how do I protect this little girl, mm-hmm. right? Who do I need to be as a man to protect her? And I, I think that's what having these different cases that I that I had really pulled out of me and really let me know the magnitude of of where I needed to be. And so for me, it it, it brought on a, a deeper focus on legislation, policy, and all these things. But what's so powerful about it is like, so my daughter is at the same school that your son went to elementary school mm-hmm. and all the, you know, principal Goggins is still there. You know, she talks about the work that you did with the young boys while you were there. Mm-hmm. So now it's like, even though I have this legislative and policy standpoint, I still also have this foundational standpoint because I, I saw you do it. I heard about all the things that you've done in terms of feeding into these kids. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so like, it created this twofold response. And um, to me, I think that's what's so powerful about it because when we talk about those triggers, my, my greatest concern is ensuring that while I'm building her up internally, right? Making sure that that external world doesn't defeat her either. Mm-hmm. And so yes. um, I've, been, I've been very conscious about, I mean, my wife, she was like, man, you... She thought I was tripping for a while, but I was like, hey, man, we got to chill with the white Barbie dolls. I'm not saying I'm not trying to be racist or anything, but like she's she's fed through this Western lens mm-hmm. all day, every day. Right. Disney's feeding her through this Western lens because, you know, in a, a difficult conversation we had to have was like, and I told my wife this, and, you know, we, you know, we kind of, we, we got into a spirited conversation over it, mm-hmm. but I told her, I said, man. I'm tired of these animated cartoons 
elevating black women only to be with uh, a mm. white lover. Right. Like, and I'm not saying we, like, I'm not against interracial anything. What I'm against is the devaluing of black men. Yes. And so where's the elevation? Because I told her, I said, I said that love interest, right? I mean, maybe you can give us Black Panther, maybe, you know, in that spe- in that spectrum. Mm-hmm. But in all the recent ones, Little Mermaid, her daddy was white, the boyfriend was white. I was like, tall, man. I mean, they, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, even her daddy, like, where, where, where do we fit in? I was like, do you, like, what does that play into what our children see? Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, it was bananas because then she started actually, she went back and started Googling some of these, um, <laughs> some of these, these shows and cartoons and anime. And I don't want to call out the company. Right, 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 right. She, she went back and looked. She was like, all right, babe. I'm sorry. She was like, She's like, how did you pick up on it? I was like, because I'm a black man sitting in a movie theater. And right. I'm to see it. And I'm like, where, where am I at here? Where am I at? I'm like, no, nah, right. man. Then fast forward, fast forward, you're going to want me to go see the color purple with you. Yeah. It's like, and I was so glad when the NAACP issued that statement on the color purple. Like, hey, man, y'all going to have to depict black men in, the, in a different light. And I was like, Thank you. Yeah, I'm not saying yeah. all black men are angels. That's right. not what I'm saying. But this negative connotation of, of us being pimps, thugs, and you know what I'm saying? Y'all aren't painting these 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 healthy pictures of our father. But anytime you, you look at a movie and it's like you got a black father, it's like he overcoming 20, 30, 50 different issues, you know, and I'm like, look, man, right, come on, man. Right, Why can't he huh? just be a well-adjusted individual who makes Damn. all the right decisions, living his best life, doing the best he yeah. can, and why we can't see that, you know, because yeah. people will say, well, that ain't real. That ain't real. <laughs> what was crazy is, what I'm learning is, it is real. Yes. They just programmed us at such a yes. because they you know they can't say you don't exist they can't say I don't exist right. and that's you know I was telling um I was telling one of the uh, the guys because he was wanting to do a book and he was like man I can't believe you helping me the, the way that you know you are he was like most times black men get into this space or they get into a place and and they just got to be the only Negro in the room and I said well first of all that's not completely true and second of all. They have done such a number on black men and the narrative around us that there is a gaping wide hole that you can drive 10 semis through. Mm. <laughs> you yeah, know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they've diminished the value of black men. And so anything that you put out that shows black men in a positive light is going to make an impact because people aren't accustomed to seeing it. And that's the sad part about all this. Right. And you know, the other thing too is, you know, because I, I hear you with that helping. Like I'm in a a weird place with that helping, you know, right now because there's two things you want to give. Like, you know, I don't know if you go through this. I every time this happens, it triggers me in a really small way. Like you go to the cash register and then you pay for whatever you're paying for, and then they say, "Oh, you want to give the rest of your change to blah 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 charity," and it's kind of like. <laughs> and I used to feel some kind of way about saying no, and now I just say no. I was like, no, I give. My whole life is about giving. I'm, yeah. I shouldn't feel guilty because I say no to this charity, particularly yeah. since I know that this particular charity that you're asking me to donate to gets hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to do whatever it is they're trying to do. And as a not-for-profit agency and someone who monitors and watches other not-for-profit agencies, particularly those that are Black-led and people of color-led, we are struggling with getting twos and fews to do the critical work that's necessary to empower and uplift our communities. There's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with a society that cares more about animals than humans, that cares more about trees than humans, that cares more about fish than humans, right? There's something wrong with that. And so that's that protest for me that comes from that. But in this publishing space, it is the same thing. It is, Mm -hmm. listen, you know, only now was nine, I think it's 12 now. 12% of children's books that are being written about people of color are actually written by people of color. 
That means 82% of books that are written on by for people of color are written by people of not of color, right? And there's, there's something crazy about that. And in my mind, you know, my thing is I'm torn always between how much indiv- how much information do I give an inf- how much information do I give an individual who doesn't respect my journey to getting where I am? Yeah. Because you gotta pay it forward and you mm-hmm. have to invest in yourself. And investing yeah. in yourself means investing in the person that you're asking information from. So I would say yeah. to that person, I would be glad to help you understand how to write a book, but have you purchased my book? Mm-hmm. Have you even thought about purchasing my book? Have you even read my book? The book is 20 pages. Do you know anything about me? Do you know anything about anything else that I've done? And when people do that and they don't do that, to me it says it's disingenuous to ask me to help you give you the holy grail to success when you haven't invested in the mechanism that's going to help you there, particularly when you go to the other man, you're willing to empty out your wallet to get that information. And that's that's the crossroads that I'm at. And do you, have you thought about that and, and struggle with that? Yeah, I do. Um, Cause what you, what you're talking about is, and I mean, it's, it's, it's what we face on so many different levels. It's these transactional relationships, mm-hmm. right? Instead of these relationships that are reciprocal. And, you know, I think for me, so when I was sharing with this, this under, this other individual about doing it, there's some other things we're working on together. You mm-hmm. see what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's, it's there's a, a difference. There's a there's a totem go here yeah, yeah. compared to me pouring in like and I'm and that's that's where I'm I'm frustrated with and and, and I won't be apologetic about um, is is this whole emptying my cup because at, at the end of the day and, and I've I've shared this with everybody at the end of the day you know I still got a wife that I got to show up for mm. I got a daughter that I got to show up for. And, and I've got a community that I have to show up for. One of the things that I, I know without a shadow of a doubt is that our community needs heroes. They need inspiration. Mm. They got to see King. They got to see Dante. They got to see multiple ones of us, right? Mm. But we also got to be willing to hold our own in these spaces mm. because if we're not willing to hold our own, what happens to us? Mm. Like, it's so crazy because, and I, I talk about this to, to really pull the bandaid off this diversity, equity, inclusion thing. Because my thing is, Diversity, diversity, equity, and inclusion is an illusion, right? <laughs> if you're not talking about policy, legislation, and really creating a level playing field, I'll use the communication space, right? I read one report said the communication space is 50%, 56% minority. I'm like, woo! I'm like, we in there, man. We in there. We in there. Yeah, we in there. Man, you, you do the little drop down on that minority box, bro. Right. You take, and again, I'm trying, you know, I'm, this this ain't PC, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. Right. You take white women out of that group, right? Right. Now the numbers drop down to 12%. Right. And it's like, whoa. Right. Whoa. Right. I thought y'all said we was 56% minority. Right. Yeah. Right? That minority box get a little funny now. And so, and then when you talk about black folks, and that 12%, it shrinks even mm, more. Deeper, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, dang, so now you're thinking about how many black folks like me actually own own their own firms and out here running the streets trying to get business. You're talking about 1.2%. 1.2%. Yeah. This whole industry, and we don't even make up, we less than 1.5%. Like, that to me, and, and that's the part that people like, to your point, right? Mm-hmm. When you're talking about it's just 12%, like, and I keep telling folks, there aren't enough of us in these spaces, right? Like, we're still we're still pushing this boulder uphill just to get the word out of, of our product, what we bring to the table. Right. And the best thing that folks can do for us is support us on this journey. 
Right. Because we're going to be the ones that come back into the community. It's not the other side. Right. They take that money and they go back home. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Right. Your, your, your money is paying for the kids to go to private school. Right. And we're, we're just trying to keep our people taken care of. And so to your point, yeah, we can't, we, we don't have the energy to be in a transactional relationship. We can't afford to be. Right. We can't. Yeah. So talk to me about the book. I'm, 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 you know, I saw it and um, I have it somewhere. I don't know where. I think it's in the house. And so the crazy thing <laughs> is I'm a big children's book buyer and I don't have any yeah. children no more. So they just get snatched <laughs> up. <laughs> so talk to us. I about appreciate you picking up a book for us, man. Uh-huh. I really do. I said, I appreciate you picking up a book from us. I really yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, so tell us about the book. Man, you know, it, it, um, it started off with me talking to my daughter. And hearing the way that she saw me, you know what I'm saying? And um, I was talking to a, a, a another dad and he was like, man, I, you know, in 2020, he said, you had your daughter with you at, at every protest. And he was like, you know, when I saw the snipers on the roof, he said, I was scared to bring my son outside. And um, he said, but it made me a little more courageous when I saw you with your daughter because it said something. But it was like, for me, I wanted my daughter to understand what it was like, not to just, not just to be a a woman in America, because I feel like the conversation there is like, we're women in America, but to be specifically a black woman in America, you're going to face a different, a different set of challenges. And so she's been on this journey with me. You know, she was knocking doors with me because, you know, um, as a black man, we got to appear to be uh, less threatening. So it's we look less threatening <laughs> when we knocking on the door with a child, you know. That's um, funny. That, you, oh, my goodness. That is hilarious. With the exception of you're a bunch of black men standing outside. Wait, you see that skit on Blackish where the Delta yeah. with the exception of if you're a black man getting on the elevator and the door opens up and it's not, the little girl don't look like you. That's dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm man. sorry. No worries. But yeah. Um, and so hearing her talk about our relationship, hearing things that my wife, my wife was just like, man, she was like, so based upon your upbringing, I didn't know what type of dad you were going to be. Mm-hmm. And you know, it just, I was like, wow, man. Wow. She said, I, I didn't know. She was like, you, you blew me out the water with it. She was like, cause I, I knew you had these challenges. And so she said, I expected there to be a challenge. Mm. She said, but you show, you've been showing up for everything. She said, um, and it was something my therapist said, he said, you know, in these stories, you end up becoming another hero mm-hmm. or you become a, a, a product of what you went through, you know, that villain. And so, um, fortunate enough, you know, I became that hero. You're that hero. And so, as I'm looking at this stuff, I'm like, man, I got I to gotta capture this. And so that's what the book is about, capturing this heroic journey um, with my little girl. And, you know, it's so crazy because I got pushback. Folks are like, man, you got a wife. Where your wife at? Where your wife at? And it's like, look, I know I got a wife. Right, but, right, like, right. It's, you know, I, you know, in this society that we're in, black women get celebrated. They get highlighted. And I'll never take that from them because they need it. Right. They've done some, they've done some work. So we're, we're not going to take that from them. But we're not going to diminish the value of a man, specifically a black man, in this either. And so that's what I wanted to capture is is that story of, of me, my daughter, what we had to do, um, her being on this journey with me uh, through the R. Kelly case, the Amaya case, um, her seeing me run for office, her being a part of that journey. Uh, I wanted to, to put that in there because, you know, um, the average reading level in America is a fourth grade reading level. Mm-hmm. And that's just America. Mm-hmm. Now we, t- we isolate, we talk about black kids and it drops even lower. Wow. Um, we got folks that aren't filling out the census. They're not filling out the free and reduced lunch forms because they can't comprehend what the government's asking of them. Right. And so for me in my mind, I was like, man, if, um, if I can put this in the story, maybe it'll inspire, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe it'll inspire folks to read and I mean, the feedback that I got from parents has been inspiring. Just telling me how many times they've been, you know, especially fathers, just, man, I've been, I read this book to my daughter a few times this week already, you know, mm-hmm. it was like just to be able to see, be able to correlate myself in this story. And so that, mm-hmm. that's what it, it, it came down to. I mean, a lot of, a lot of what you're, what you're talking about or what you're doing, I, I don't think um, our stories differ much. 
how we communicate them might be different. Right. But I think we, we see the need to um, really, really showcase, because I mean, I'm just going to be real. 90% of my friends who are black are married to black women. Yeah. It's not their first wife. I mean, it's not their second or the third wife. It's their first one. Wow. I mean, we all trying to figure this out together. And I'm like, man, the fact that we don't highlight this. Right. And, the, and the, you know, 86% of black people who are married in America are still married to within their community, black women, black women marrying black men. Yeah. And so I'm looking at the number of marriages and these are just the numbers. And I'm like, so we are still marrying 86%. That's a, that's a B plus average people within yeah. our community. Why are we highlighting that? You know, and so, and that was even part, you know, going back to the conversation my wife and I had about, you know, what my daughter was seeing in some of these different shows. I'm like, the reality is, is most married black men are marrying other black women. Absolutely. Let's, let's spotlight that. Absolutely. Let's talk about that. And you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's like no. people will make you try to feel some kind of way about that. And we know our kids that are growing up now are growing up a little different. They're growing up where <laughs> they're trying to, particularly young black children, you know, are trying to be we are the world, if you understand that yeah. reference, right? And that's what they're being taught in their schools. That's where they're being taught throughout their, their young culture, um, that they have to be more expressive about that. But, you know, for my son, you know, who's still in school, and my nephew, who's in school here in Georgia, um, my thing to them is this is still Georgia. Yeah. forget that this is still Georgia. And while it may look one way, um, there is still an energy um, here mm -hmm. um, that uh, will lock your ass up, you know, yeah. given the opportunity, the, 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 mm -hmm. the issue, or <laughs> you not given the opportunity, the opportunity just showing itself for someone else. Yeah. And those things we have to be mindful of um, with our children and more specifically with our boys, our girls too, but with our boys, you know, we yeah. always have to be mindful of who they are from that danger perspective that you talked about, yeah. you know, what they look like when they show up and how many of them are together when they show up. Yeah. But you know, what's powerful about what you mentioned is while there's this overarching, we are the world message 2020, I think shook, shook this thing up in a way that it's going to take it's going to take this word a few generations to, you know, kind of blot out that message because we're also seeing black folks and it, it may not be the overarching majority of them, but this self-segregation that's happening. Yeah, as well. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Wanting to reconnect. And so it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, it's, it's twofold. And it's like, I, I think for me, it's like, what I think is beautiful, right, is, you know, when I when I took my DNA test, right, before um, the transatlantic slave trade, my ancestry went back to Portugal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were like, yeah, I think we, you know, your, 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 uh, your ancestry goes back to um, uh, Portugal, we believe is uh, a European person, right? Mm -hmm. um, then I go to Portugal, right? And um, I took I signed up to take three private historical tours. For one, on the first tour, I didn't know that Portugal as we know it was created by the Moors, their language, their food, mm -hmm. their architecture. Mm -hmm. These were black folks, wow. right? And, and and folks don't, and then you, you've got all the other subgroups, uh, uh, different tribes and communities that came out of Africa that went to Portugal um, because it was under the Moors and they found sanct uh, sanctity and protection because a lot of people don't know that like with the Catholic Church and the Inquisition, you know, who were they targeting? They weren't an overwhelming large group of, of, of black Christians back then. You know, you, you look at what they what religions they were actually, actually practicing. Mm -hmm. And so where were they going for protection? Well, they were going where the army, the, where the Moors were because they had been beating them back for 700 years. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. And so they went there for protection. And so I'm sitting over here and regardless of what color the historian was, because we took an African history tour there um, and we learned, you know, my family and I learned a ton there. And then we, um, we, uh, we, we took a couple of the, uh, the white um, uh, European tours. And I mean, it's like nobody ever talks about that intersection of history. 
And they were like, man, yeah, Portugal was the blackest country in Europe before the transatlantic slave trade. A lot of people don't know the first slave market was in Portugal. I didn't even know that. Mm. And a majority of the slaves came out of Europe. They didn't come out of Africa. They came out of Europe. And so it it just blew my mind with how well-traveled our ancestors were Mm -hmm. and the things that they did, the culture that they spread around the world that nobody talks about. Mm -hmm. And so like for me, you know, we talk about fatherhood. That's a piece of it that that I want to capture too is like, now don't put us into just this this one box because, you know, our history dates back 6,000 years. Don't rob us of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Nice. Nah, you know, world, which is something that I talk to my kids about, you know, be curious about world history, not just U.S. history. You can get locked yeah. up in your frame of thought when you just think about U.S. history. But to your point about context, if you really want to understand us, you have to understand us through the lens of world history. Yeah. So thank you so much, brother. I appreciate you, man. I'm glad I got you on. I've been wanting to do it for a while. There's two other conversations that I actually wanted to have with you, but realize in this conversation that we're going to have to come back and dig into those other conversations (laughs) is I might have to bring you and Sharper on for this other conversation around, you know, politics, right? Yeah. Because I think it's an interesting uh, framework when you talk about politics in a space like we're in, in Sandy Springs where we mm-hmm. know what the numbers are, but we still don't seem to have a, a strength base given yeah. the economic um, positioning of the people of color who are here. And yeah. that there is also an undercurrent of low income black people who live in Dunwoody, Sandy Spring that people don't think exists. Like, it's like, what? Like, there's no point, like, yeah, yeah, there is. And so, and then what our schools look like and what that looks like in towns across the country. Um, And then the second thing I wanna come back and talk to you about is I wanna dig more into the imagery, particularly of black fathers and black men in the media and what that's like now as it relates to current events, past events and, and, and future events. So be ready for me to call you back to talk about those two things because those two things need discussion as well. So thank you, man. I appreciate you. And to all my I Am Dad podcast listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Make sure you check us out on IamDadPodcast.com for all complete two seasons of I Am Dad podcast and the new season now that we're in the third season. So you know how I like to always leave you. Always be kind to others as you're kind to yourself or you might find yourself by yourself. Always shoot high for your goals because even if you miss, you'll be amongst the stars. And as my good friend Art Mitchell also always used to say to me, it's nice to be important, but you know what? It's much more important to be nice. Till next Sunday, peace out. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. You've been listening to I Am Dad Podcast. We hope that you have been informed, encouraged you to think, or even inspired your heart for the love of dads. The conversation does not end here. Come back and join us next week. Same time, same place. Or you can continue the dialogue on our I Am Dad Facebook page. We also invite you to listen to past episodes, learn more about us, and keep up with special activities by visiting IamDadPodcast.com. That's IamDadPodcast.com. Until next time. I leave you with this reminder of manhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Because of this reminder, I will always understand that I am dad, period.